The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony, Utah Opera, Ghostlight Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. At the time of this recording, we are just over 24 hours from opening night of Silent Night, the Pulitzer Prize-winning opera. Tomer Zvulin shared last week how he approaches telling the story on stage, and today we'll hear from composer Kevin Putz and librettist Mark Campbell about adapting the 2005 film Joyeux Noël for the operatic stage. Kevin, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We're so glad to have you. I'll throw this one out to both of you just to get us started. Silent Night tells the story of the Christmas truce of 1914, and it occurs to me that war has served as an opera setting so many times before. I'm thinking of Aida and pieces like this, but the reality of it is almost always off camera. So how does this project change the way armed conflict can be reflected through art? Well, I mean, I think one of um, one of the things that Mark did with this libretto, which was um, great for me because I had, before I started this opera, been primarily an orchestral composer. Um, he gave me space to to depict things with with the orchestra and to just to have the have the the singers act and and you know kind of have some freedom that way with the orchestra. So there's a scene early on in the opera, um, a, a really pretty pretty intense battle scene. Um, and I was saying earlier today to someone else that before I wrote that scene, I had to watch the first. Uh, 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan <laughs> just to sort of get <laughs> in the right framework for, you know, the, the right mood for this kind of uh, this kind of depiction and to draw the right music out of me. But all of that is just sort of choreographed. Um, and so you really do get inside the, you see the battle, you know, it's not happening somewhere else. It's happening right there on the stage and it's pretty intense. And I think that this, this opera is about the possibility of peace uh, and you can't explore the theme a theme called the possibility of peace without actually showing war on stage. The other operas you mentioned, the war is backstage because it's, they're essentially love stories that just happen to take place during wartime. This is about war and about the possibility of peace, and so therefore it has to be center stage. And it's set in the trenches too. Yeah. Well, so in the printed score for Silent Night, I loved your uh, acknowledgement that you have to Dale Johnson, who was really the engine of this piece, uh, art formerly artistic director of the Minnesota Opera and now creative advisor. And you said that um, you acknowledged him for having this vision to take this film from 2005 and make it into an operatic project. How was that brought to your attention? How were you invited to be a part of this? Well, Kevin was invited first. The librettist is always invited last, of course. Um, <laughs> we're used to that. Um, but, but Kevin was invited, as it should be, I guess. You know, it's opera. It should be the composer. Um, Dale Johnson and Minnesota Opera and the New Works Initiative have commissioned many new American works. It's a really terrific company. Minnesota Opera is one of the best companies when it comes to new work in this country, I think. And uh, Dale had heard Kevin's music and loved it. And Dale tells the story of, of like having to stop the car because he was weeping so much, um, because I, maybe it was a violin concerto or something like that. And um, so he wanted Kevin to write an opera for Minnesota Opera. He heard a narrative voice in Kevin's music. Um, and so he had seen this movie, and he, he had Joie Noël, and he proposed it as an idea. He went to Kevin, Kevin watched it and said, yeah, that seems like a good idea. Um, and then he came to me. I had written a number of operas already, um, and he came to me and asked me if I'd watch it and if I thought it would be a good subject for an opera. 
And I did. I was guarded because it's a movie and there are many, I made many decisions to make it stage worthy. Mm -hmm. But I knew what Dale was looking at, that there was something about this story, the significance of this story, the emotion that could be wrought from the story that only music could give to the story. And he was brilliant in choosing Kevin to write it. I can't imagine another composer. Um, well, I mean, it, it was just a kind of dream uh, opportunity because I had thought about writing an opera, and I had, it certainly had been suggested to me that I might do it, and I just didn't know where to start. I didn't know any librettists. I didn't know any stories. I didn't know opera companies. It wasn't my world. So it was so exciting to, that Dale uh, you know, heard this in my music and took a chance on me because it, once I started writing it and first got Mark's libretto, which I learned was just masterfully worked out so that music just came out of it. And moving musically from scene to scene was just sort of effortless because of the way Mark imagined it. It felt right from the beginning. It wasn't a struggle. It was just uh, <laughs> exciting, to be honest. Another thing um, that Minnesota Opera does that I think is really incredible, and one reason they're a leader in, in creating contemporary opera, is that they give the composer and librettist three workshops with the stage director. Our stage director is Eric Simonson, mm -hmm. and uh, he's an excellent dramaturg. And he's fantastic. He did our. Uh, he's was involved with the Grapes of Wrath that yes, we did exactly. in two thousand seven. He's, he's really tremendous. And um, so we had a chance to hear Act One and then Act One and Act Two, and then the orchestra for Act One and Act Two, and make changes and just improve the opera. And Dale also would kind of whisper in our ears and say, "You might want to look at Scene Three. It's uh, something's not. He's a, a good producer." asks a question a bad producer says this is what you should do mm -hmm. um, well he just sort of had such a light hand through the whole thing i mean and which was so it was so nice because i think i might have been overwhelmed you know with this if i was constantly getting you know criticism and um so he they really do know how to produce a new opera there in minnesota mark let's uh let's keep the librettist in focus for another minute here kevin gets plenty of attention so i want to talk to you a little bit more but i can always do more the, though you know, yeah. <laughs> i crave attention that's why i'm a librettist just, yeah. well, let's say the let's magic let words you, let's let you talk some more um, wait you want to talk to me oh my I god do. i do i love you where can i send a check um, okay. I'll, I'll i'll tell you that okay, okay. off the air but um <laughs> This is not your first libretto. You've written many. So many are based on novels and short stories. And I'm curious how it was adapting a cinematic screenplay and how that was different. I mean, the fact that there was already an existing visual palette must have entered into the way you created this. How, how did that change the way you approached this libretto? Well, an existing visual palette is something that you have to get rid of when you start working on a libretto because you're not going to get that in a, on, on stage. You know, we, we can't have... Um, 10 gazillion soldiers coming on the way you can in a battlefield. And right now they're, of course, created by a computer. Half of my work is original and half of it is um, based on novels. I think I've only written one or two that are based on films. Um, in terms of adapting a film, it the, all the rules still apply. Who's the character you care about? How can this be musical? Why is this an opera? Why do people need to sing this? Um, these are just questions that you would ask whether it's original or adapted. The difference with an adaptation, I mean, I adapted The Shining, but that's based on the novel. The difference is that you have to be true to the spirit of the original um, writer. In this case, for Joie Noël, it was Christian Carrion. And you have to somehow be true to what they're trying to say, but you don't have the resources that they have in film to say it. And often... 
in, in the case of, of, of a long novel or a, a movie, it's you just look at it and go, what, what do I not need? Um, I'm a big believer in what is necessary in theater. And I think in terms of libretto, what is necessary has to be enforced even stronger because there's this other thing called music um, that comes in. And so if your words are, if there are five extra words, that could screw up an aria. I mean, it could, it could just make a mess, a shambles of an aria. And so I like to think of um, what do I need to the bare bones of telling this story? Nothing augmented. I love this idea of thinking about what you don't need. And I'm sure for you, that's anything that doesn't make good music. Yeah, I mean, I've made lots of mistakes where I thought I needed it and it made bad music, of course. <laughs> I mean, but um, we won't get into that unless you get a bottle of wine. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I have to say Silent Night fell so effortlessly into place. I mean, um, I did not have to spend 70 emails, which I have done before, with an aria um, to try to explain what the aria is trying to say. Kevin just understands how to tell a story. He knows how to withhold information musically. So you create an emotional landscape. Um, a lot of composers get in there and they write opera and they're gonna make it big and they're gonna make it really emotive. And then there's no place for the singer and no place for the drama to go. Kevin is brilliant at pacing and pacing is something that um, is more important than you think in opera. It's rarely discussed, but it is it is a it's, really important thing. It's key. It is uh, key. People it, are sitting, they're sitting there. We need to make it worth their time. You do. And it, and pacing, I should actually say energy. Energy. I think I pacing like is related to energy. It's an interesting question because, um, you know, my ex experience with drama has been mainly through um, film, actually. I knew film a lot better than I knew opera when I went into this. Of course, I know some opera and but I'm not an opera buff by any means. And um, so I think when I started studying this beautiful libretto, um, it was done from a sort of film scoring perspective, you know, which I've, I've never written a film score either. But um, I, I, felt, I felt there was a cinematic um, sort of need for, for in the libretto. And maybe that was influenced by the fact that I had seen the film and there were some, you know, there, there's a sense in the film, uh, there are times when the camera sort of pans over the whole, the whole field or, the, or, or even the hills or like, like what you can't do in opera. But music can kind of do that. You can create a sense of that, of that, of we're stepping back now and looking at the whole situation. And I think that was in my ear when I was uh, writing it. Well, Kevin, was there a part of Mark's libretto when you got it in your hands that you immediately had to start on? Do you start from the beginning? You know, I started from the beginning um, because it was such an exciting beginning. Um, right. It begins <laughs> with a kind of pastiche. Uh, I, I don't really like that word because I, I approached it with such genuine fervor. <laughs> but uh, it, it, uh, it, it, was, it takes place on, in the, on the stage of a Berlin opera house mm -hmm. where our, two of our characters, uh, uh, Nikolaus Sprink, who's a, a tenor, and his girlfriend, Anna Sorensen, who's a Danish soprano, and they're in love with each other. They are singing in an opera in the style of Mozart or Gluck, is what it says in the libretto. And I just love the idea of starting somewhere so far away from where we're going. You know, there's something really interesting about that in anything, in a, in a film, you know, where you begin somewhere and wait a minute, what's this film about? And it takes, and then you realize how you're going to get to what this thing is really about. And so I love the idea of beginning in this style of, 
of Mozart, who's my favorite composer, and trying to create something that would actually convince the audience that it might be, you know, wait a minute, are we seeing the right thing here? <laughs> um, that was that was fun. Um, I mean, so. you do start with a fanfare that leads us to know where I, we're going to go. Right, which was not my idea. I wanted oh, to begin. I wanted to begin with a very quiet uh, classical accompaniment, dun, 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 you know, in the second violins or something, and then have this melody come in. But I was convinced that. Um, Opera audiences needed a little bit of a jolt to sort of like what what's going on here, you know. So there it begins that, with a cut. Is that Dale or Michael Christie was Eric? Sure. I think oh, Eric. Okay. Yeah, Eric. Was was yeah, um, yeah. I think so. I think um, he was so nice about. It. Can we uh, maybe begin with a little more um, hey, sort guys. of energy, yeah. or maybe I don't know. I'm just worried about maybe that could be a bass drum or something. Then once I had written the music that follows that scene, which is a kind of war theme that keeps coming back throughout the opera. I think that, that's what I call it, the war motive mm -hmm. or the war theme. I based that first fanfare on that music, which was satisfying to me because it was organic. Right, right. And you hear it in the battle scene. Many, it gets repeated. Yeah, it's just Absolutely. a simple cool. descending fits. It's, and it's, it gets compacted as yeah, it goes Yeah, exactly. Too. That's right. That's tension, right. It's yes, so amazing. Right. When I heard that, I went, oh. So that's uh, then this actually kind of leads me to something that I've been really curious about. I was desperate to Google these military tunes that you included, and then I realized none of them actually mm -hmm. existed in history. And I find it amazing. Uh, the, the different choruses sing uh, military anthems in their languages. And there's a lot of these throwbacks, I guess you could say, to existing musical styles. There's a Scottish folk song that I swear I could have heard at any Highland festival. So I mean... <laughs> How did you make those your own voice while connecting with the, with those styles that existed already? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I just relished doing it, I guess. I mean, I, I, didn't, I wasn't afraid of it. I thought, oh, this is going to be so fun to try to write something Scottish that actually could be played on the bagpipes. So I got together with a bagpiper and worked out what notes could be played. And, um, and of course, everything around those scenes where there's a bagpipe has, is, is dependent on the bagpipe. So it has the, to be in the, the key, key of the, the bagpipe. Yeah, because they can have. only play in a certain <laughs> note. So it, that, but that's fine. And, and, and then there's, a, there's another scene that's a sort of Schubertian duet that Mark wrote that, that our heroes, uh, Anna and Nikolaus, uh, sing at, the, at a party at the Crown Prince's Chalet. Um, and that, that was also, it's just like, you know, it's, it's kind of wonderful to reflect how much I love all this music, you know, in my, in my own way. But I, I wasn't really, I wasn't interested in inflecting my own voice in those songs. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to feel real. I wanted the audience to feel like they're really hearing, like you said, a, 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 like a French battle song or a, or a Scottish ballad. It was just, it was a, a joy to work on. The, the thing that you have to realize also about Silent Night, one of the themes is that music can repair, can help, can heal, can bring people together. Now, we were doing as much as we can to avoid that message, you know, being in an opera because it seems, you know, self-loving. Um, <laughs> but that is, and so there was a real reason, there was a really organic reason. There were They were singing Christmas carols on the front, so therefore we wrote our own Christmas carols. There is a Scottish ballad that involved a bagpipe, and when the troops hear the bagpipe, when the... Um, other bunkers hear the bagpipe, they make fun of it, but it connects them. Mm -hmm. um, so it's thematic. It wasn't that we just wanted to write um, what we love doing it, but it wasn't that we just threw them in. They make sense. Um, they contribute I mean, to the story. Incredible dramatic vehicles right. throughout. And also, frankly, they're tunes, and an audience likes to hear some tunes. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs>
Carol, I'm glad you mentioned the languages because I think that's one of the interesting sort of um, set of ingredients for this piece. The fact that there are at least five languages in play, right? French, English, German, some Italian and Latin. I wonder, Mark, for you, have you had previous experiences that prepared you for this kind of minefield? Pardon well, the pun. My, my last name is Campbell, so Scottish was the hardest to, uh, <laughs> to write in. Um, no, I, I, I did actually make this decision, um, and I remember telling the stage director, I said, I really do want these five. I mean, it's mostly three languages. Mm -hmm. uh, the right. other two languages are the Italian that is sung in the prologue, and then the Latin mass. Um, but otherwise, it's, it's French, German, and Scottish. And I made this decision early on. Um, Eric said, are you sure you want to do that? That's going to be complicated. And I said, I really don't want to hear German opera singers singing with like a Colonel Klink German Hogan's Heroes accent or a Pepe Le Pure. I'm really dating myself with my references right now. Um, I'm right I'm with, with you. you. Okay. Oh, good. Thank you. Then I, I feel less old. Um, uh, but, but beyond that, the differences in languages, for, it's a dream for a writer to find where the obstacles are in a story. And if there's a linguistic obstacle, that's all the better. That makes it, uh, the storytelling more complicated. And actually more beautiful, you know, when this moment happens and they all tentatively get out of their trenches and, and decide on this ceasefire. It's so awkward, you know, there, somebody's saying, saying something and then at the, at the same time, some soldiers in the other trenches saying, what did he say? And then they translate it as the music, as the things are going on. It's just so real. And um, sing the words Merry Christmas in three, in three languages to one another. You realize what you're what you're dealing with is it's I love that moment actually in the libretto where it's just like this is this is it this is what we're doing here we are having three armies opposed who are opposed opposing one another decide to stop fighting it's crazy it really is a clash of cultures right mm -hmm. and to have it them is. sing in their own language is important it, it's very important and also as the three um, different troops are beginning to understand each other you see that the other troops are trying to make um, trying to make efforts to understand another person. When Lieutenant Gordon tries to thank Odebert for a cup of coffee, oh. or he says, le, le, le café est excellent. No, no, he says, hey, la, la café. He says, hey, la café est excellent. And that's his first time he's attempting French. And of course, the French, being the French person, says, le café. That's le café. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love but that. But that's humor. And it's also, it, it just shows a connection between these people. Mm -hmm. And, um, and another, you know, technical thing, since you brought it up, when you have two people who don't speak the same language, you need a translator. So therefore, a duet can become a trio, and who doesn't like a good trio? And who doesn't like counterpoint? I mean, yeah, from a composer's exactly. point of view, it's, it's you know, much more interesting to, to, you know, have some layering of what you're doing. You know, writing aria is fun, but I would, I would choose counterpoint any day. And I think you asked if I had... How did I do? I speak those languages? No, not nearly well enough. I did have translators, um, and I would, I tried to write it in the languages myself, and they would either laugh or go very good. And this is um, the duet that we talked about um, at the chalet, which is supposed to be like a um, Hugo Wolf or Schubert sort of song. Honestly, and it had to rhyme. And it's German. I have a really good German accent, but I don't speak German. So what I did was, I honestly did this. I Googled bad romantic German poetry. <laughs> and I found all of these lines and cut and paste them together until they made sense. 
And I sent it off to my German translator. I said, this is very good. There's only one word that's wrong. Um, <laughs> it was an email, and I still give him a German accent. Um, <laughs> it was, but it was, uh, it was great. I mean, like, I had good translators. The thing that pe people always talk about, like, wow, it's amazing that you wrote this libretto in all these languages. My job is easy. It's setting the languages, the way Kevin that's expertly right. set them. That's much, <laughs> no, it's true, but that is much harder. That's the challenge. Words. The German was hard. I, it wasn't natural for me. I don't know German so I, I, well at all, and, I, and so I had to have someone, you know, speak all of it to me. Or so you could get the lyrical yeah, the, inflection, the, the, the rhythm, the rhythm, and the, yeah, and the some somewhat pronunciation. I mean, I pretty much knew how it was pronounced, but you know, the stresses in the word and the stresses in the sentence were super important because I always try to reflect that absolutely in the music. I never try to distort that. Um, and so uh, it was a kind of a paint by numbers process when I, when I was working through the German. The French and, and the French and the English and Italian were fine. But. Well, I always like to say to the singers that I was working with as we were parsing through your rhythmic writing, it seems very complex what he's done, what Kevin has done when he has written these melodic lines. But then when you finally learn them and then you just do them, you realize that you're just doing the rhythms of the text as right. they should be done. And so it's really quite masterful. Okay. It just involves um, some rhythmic mathematics along the way. Mark, let's leave the trench for just a second here, because I know that you're involved in a number of programs that are designed to train librettists. You're actually giving back, paying it forward, which I think is great. And what's your best advice for a writer who wants to expand into the opera world and write librettos like you do? Um, well, that's you, you've done your work. Thank you. That's flattering to me that you even know that. Um, I can tell you this, that when I started writing librettos, there were no training programs for writing uh, librettos. And I mentioned this earlier in a talk that I just listened to Sondheim's work over and over and that's who I learned from I didn't like opera I still have problems with opera um, as a form uh, especially because the stories are often so unbelievable um, so and I know that that's part of it and that's that's fine but um, that's for another podcast yeah that's true um, but my my advice would be study study the good librettos um, learn that com that the music the reason it's an opera is because music's involved. Learn the role of music in, in telling this story and try to make your words as short and simple as possible. Learn when to get out of the way and let the power of music take over because words won't win. They can never win against music, especially in an opera because everyone's paid for an opera. They didn't, they didn't pay for your words. Um, and I was saying this at another earlier talk that my favorite moments in my operas are when they're not where the words are not important. The event is important and the music is important and the singer is important. And boy, we have the best singers. We have the best cast oh, for true. this production. Like it's mm -hmm. just amazing. Amazing and amazing orchestra too. I've got to say that. I mean, the Utah Symphony uh, who plays in, in this opera, is just, you know, it's so important in the storytelling. Um, the orchestra really, a lot of the heart is there and, and the storytelling happens in the orchestra. So it's so important for me anyway. What about you, Kevin? I mean, what would you tell a composer who wanted to tackle their first opera? Are there things you wish somebody had said to you? Oh, I probably should have written a few songs before <laughs> I started an opera. Um, I mean, I, I really had so little experience um, setting text. And um, I've learned so much since Silent Night. There are things that I would never do, um, never ask the singers to do, or just ways I would make it 
more satisfying to sing. Um, and uh, and I know there are ranges, but I know sort of you know where a baritone really resonates and where it's powerful and where it's not so powerful. Of course, every singer is different, but um, I think I think it's good to to really work with singers and really try to you know uh, not don't, don't sort of not fight with them, but listen to them and and um, notice where I mean I think being your your best critic is is, is your or your worst critic is is the way to to, to go um, you know to to be honest with what you're hearing if it's not really resonating if it's not really working and if the story feels distorted by convoluted music that's unnecessarily complicated um, there's really no reason for that it's really mark saying it's all about the music it's really all about the story i mean it really is <laughs> the story told through the music but you, you know let me if i could just you know the the, the premiere of this piece in minnesota, in minnesota opera um i thought it was going to be a complete disaster because um william burden the amazing tenor who was uh, cast to play sprink lost his voice and he couldn't sing the part, and no, and no one could sing it. Um, no one, no one could walk the part. No one knew the the, the what's staging. it called the staging. Right. So, so they told me this an hour before the opening of this opera that we had worked on for two and a half years. Um, yeah. Um, so, the understudy is going to sing it um, with a music stand on the side of the stage, and Bill will sort of lip sync through the opera. I thought this is going to be. This is going to be, I mean, I can't believe this is how, I would just sort of just dumbfounded. Your worst st nightmare. Staring forward. But what happened was that the, the story and the way Mark told it was so engaging that after, once you're in, once the audience was in and they just cared about what happened, that they just wanted to know what happens next. What is What happens to this character? That little mm -hmm. problem of having the voice come from somewhere else just ceased to be an issue. Um, so I, I really think that, Sometimes I, in the operas I've written, I've, I feel I've gotten a little glib with like how I'm going to set some text. You know, I think, oh, I want to do this because it's interesting musically after this music. You know, it'll be so cool to go from this scene to this scene with uh, sort of diametrically opposing music. But if it doesn't serve the story, it's really not worth it. It's really not a good idea. Um, so I feel like I'm much more careful now than I was uh, when I wrote Silent Night about exactly what am I projecting with this music? Is it in, to the, in the service of, of this story? So we like to ask our opera guests, is there an operatic subject out there for either of you that you're dying to make a reality? A new project. A new project, for something that someone hasn't or... thought of. No, it can be individual. Uh, for me, I was saying, uh, when, when Jeff asked me this question on my first podcast appearance, I suggested... Uh, Steel Magnolias, the opera needed to be written. Oh, right. yeah, so yeah, yeah. something like that. Yeah. I can tell you a story that I'd love to tell, but no one's very interested in it. Um, <laughs> and it would be a chamber opera. In Philadelphia in like 1970, a bunch of um, anti-war uh, hippies, basically, like five or six of them, raided the FBI. I don't, this is way before your time, but raided an FBI office and exposed um, all of what J. Edgar Hoover was doing to, you know, like like illegal stuff against the Black Panther, against anyone that he saw as a possible enemy against the government or anything like that. And they were never caught. And, um, and it really, really exposed the FBI. Suddenly it changed how America viewed the FBI, an organization that they had previously mostly trusted in a way, uh, even through the McCarthy era. Interesting. Um, and I love this story because uh, 
it's it's just such an American story. They were never caught, and then after a while, the statute of limitations ran out. So about four or five years ago, they came forward, and there was a book written about them. And they've all changed. You know, they had to change their names because it's the FBI. I don't know. That story intrigues me. Uh, I can't explain why. It just sings. I mean, it all comes down to, it sings. I'm. I, I can tell you one thing that I'm, and and I'll shut up. But. Um, <laughs> Um, I just finished my second oratorio with Paul Moravec, and that's about um, Ellis Island. Paul wanted to write mm-hmm. about immigration because it's a very important subject now. So I set the, uh, the, the oratorio on Ellis Island on a day in 1921. The commissioner of that, after we did a um, presentation of it, came up to me and said, I'm ready to commission a third piece. The story I want to tell is um, about this woman in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Um, her last name is Burks. And in 1984, 85, she visited a friend in the hospital and she looked down the corridor and there was a whole door that was blocked off and the nurses were all whispering about it. And she said, what is that? Why would you block off a patient? She said, oh, well, it's a homosexual with AIDS. This woman was very angry about this and she went, she's called the cemetery angel. She went on to bury 87 people, men, gay men, mm-hmm. who had come home and died of AIDS in a cemetery that she co-owned, that she had inherited. And then she took, a, she took care of a thousand men and women um, who died of AIDS in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And the community completely rejected her. So I want to write our third oratorio based on That's, that. I, I remember reading about the story somewhat recently that yeah, she was one of the only people that would touch these patients. Absolutely. And care for them. And that's, I have no idea how these stories come to me, but this one came to me about five weeks ago or something. I proposed it to Paul and said, where do they come from? And I said, I don't know. I feel so lucky. But this is this is a great subject for an oratorio. I don't think it's a good subject for an opera. The one thing I've wanted to do in this, uh, everybody's been shaking their heads about, is uh, Romeo and Juliet. I know it sounds That's so okay. overdone, but it's just the most beautiful poetry, the most amazing story. And um, I just kind of want to take a crack at it, you know. I mean, well, it hasn't been told just, with a modern compositional voice. No, no, but I mean, well, except West for West Side Story, Side Story which, <laughs> is, okay. which is pretty successful. Um, so Wait, yeah, it? I've heard of that. <laughs> anyway, I still, but, but I still, I hold that, out hope. That I, w- I would, I would, I would pay top price to hear what Kevin Putz would do with Romeo. I'm going to do it, I, and mm-hmm. I have some companies that would like to do it, um, who are wonderful, and I'm, I'm, when I find, I got to find a ch- chunk of time to do it. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we have another traditional question, guys, and this is for everybody that comes on the podcast, and you wouldn't believe the answers we get. And it's based on our name. You guys both know what a ghost light is and why they exist. And we always like to ask everybody who spent a lot of time in theaters, have you ever seen a ghost? Give us details. I would like to, I was obsessed with ghosts when I was growing up. Um, all I did was read horror movies, and I always was looking for it. Or you know, I wanted to go to the house in Amityville. <laughs> and I wanted to, and I heard it, there was a haunted hotel in Michigan and we stayed a night there. And I, I kind of want to believe it, but I, um, there was a time when I was in Scotland as a student, my parents were there, or my full family was there. And I went into my room and there was a very thin book that was standing up like straight. It was balanced straight up and down on the floor. There's no way to balance it. And that, I, I told my mom, I thought that was a ghost because it was Scotland and, you know, yeah, that's the where building got, was probably 400 yeah. years old. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm thinking a ghost left it that way. Oh, but wow. I didn't see a ghost. I believe in um, 
the pre I believe in presences. I don't know how to say that without, I mean, I, getting all cosmic, but um, I wrote an opera based on The Shining, and that's where all the ghosts of the hotel, the Overlook mm. Hotel, come together. And I had to believe that Jack Torrance saw that they were real to him. Um, I do believe that they exist in people's imagination, and that's not re a reductive thought. I believe that the imagination is can be as powerful as reality. So, um, I do I believe in them? I do, have I seen one? I have had instances in my life, yes. But I would call them visions. I don't know. Well, gentlemen, this has been absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you both so much for being on the Ghost Light Podcast today. Thank you. Pleasure. Yeah, we're Thank so appreciative, and we can't wait to hear the final product of our Utah opera version of your opera tomorrow night. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. You can find the Ghost Light Podcast on Stitcher and on iTunes. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. It helps us get new listeners. And until next time, I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. The Ghost Light Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. Be sure to visit utahsymphony.org and utahopera.org for more information on upcoming performances. If you're not already a seasoned subscriber, click on the tickets button to learn more about the benefits of being a part of our family of music lovers. The Utah Symphony and Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.